0: Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church Lord, thank you that we can be here together as your people, that we gather to sing your praises, that we gather to um, encourage one another, we gather to listen to your word as it's um, opened up and read and explained and applied. Father, I ask for your help now that you would help me to do that, and that I know that, Lord, words in a, without your Spirit coming and using those words which you inspired and, and then applying those words to our hearts are just words, and so we ask for your uh, Spirit to be here among us and to have your way, and Lord, that we would leave with a greater um, joy in the fact that we know you and that you uh, know us. So, Lord, be with us now in these moments, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Tyler, and I normally hang out down in Glenelg, uh, but I get to come up here, you know, about once a month or so and uh, bring the message, um, and I love coming up here, although the past, I think, three times I've been up here. It's been the time when we don't eat a meal, so I'm a little bitter about that, but... Um, <laughs> If you don't come regularly every other week, there's always a dinner going on over there, and it always smells really good, and it's distracting, you know, when we're in here. But So there's no food tonight, but, you know, you can, everybody can hang out and go get some food in North Adelaide. It's good times. So we are in the middle of a series which Don kicked off last week, um, or sorry, two weeks ago, um, called I Could Never Believe in a God Who... And then fill in the blank. I can never believe in a God who. And, that, and what we're looking at is uh, just a series of really common objections or questions or, you know, confusion that people have over God and over how He's revealed in the Bible. Um, in fact… Just over a decade ago, an American pastor by the name of Tim Keller, he did a survey of recent graduates from Yale University, which is a very prestigious university in the U.S., and he just asked them one question. So these are 21, 22-year-olds, and the question was, what is your biggest objection to Christianity? What's your biggest objection? Why don't you believe? And he uh, got a lot of different answers, but his team managed to boil those objections down to just six Uh, basic answers or six basic categories, and he calls these six um, categories defeater beliefs. And what a defeater belief is, it comes from philosophy or logic. The idea is that if this defeater belief, A, is true, then B, the gospel about Jesus, cannot be true. So if A is true, then B cannot be true. These are the six uh, defeater beliefs, and let me just give you the six. That he they found, and these were again twenty-one-year-old uh, Yale uh, graduates. Number one, there cannot be just one true religion. There can't be just one true religion. I don't know if you've ever heard anyone say that or um, object, or you've wrestled with that yourself. Um, uh, number two, evil and suffering in the world are just so common um, uh, that the gospel can't be true. Number three, religion especially organized religion, robs me of my freedom. Number four, Christians have a terrible track record of injustice and corruption. It's the the hypocrisy objection. Uh, Number five, uh, the Bible is unreliable and often barbaric. Uh, Number six, uh, God requiring blood to appease his anger at sin is repulsive. So, we're going to talk about most of these in this series. Um, you've talked about a couple of them already. In particular, Don talked about the whole idea of religion uh, robbing me of my freedom and my choice last week. Um, tonight, we're going to be talking about the, what Keller found to be the number one most common objection that he heard. And it was this I could never believe in a God who is so angry. You know, I read the Bible. And there's all this judgment happening. I look at the cross and the blood, and we sing about it, and I just, I just cannot, it's 2018, cannot believe in that. So that's what we're that's where we're going. And there's all sorts of emotions, I think, that are wrapped up in this objection. How could God be loving and demand blood sacrifice in order to forgive? Can He just forgive people because He wants to? For others, people look at the cross and think, man, it's so disproportionate. You know, Adam and Eve are the first people, according to Scripture, they, they broke one little command just to eat, you know, some fruit, and, and the result was that the Son of God had to die in a horrific, uh, brutal way. It, it just seems so disproportionate. So we're going to look at this objection more closely tonight. There's basically, um, well, there's kind of two schools of thought that I'm going to say are unhelpful ways of looking at this question. Uh, One of them comes from the so-called New Atheists. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. They don't get as much press now in 2018 as they did about a decade ago. Um, These guys are the ones that argue quite loudly that the God of the Bible is in the same category as all of the other bloodthirsty tribal gods. Uh, who demanded blood um, and sacrifices. Um, He's essentially a cosmic nightmare who is willing to wipe out entire people groups for just the, the smallest offense. So, and here's an example of this. This comes from Richard Dawkins in his 2000 book, The God Delusion. And here's what he has to say. It's up on the, or it's on the TV over there. Follow along. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, that refers to him killing his own son, Uh, pestilential, I had to look that up, means God causes plagues and diseases, megalomaniacal, meaning he's in love with himself, sadomasochistic, he enjoys inflicting pain, capriciously malevolent bully. So, Richard has told us what he thinks there, and He's saying not only is God not real, he is a menace. He is the enemy, or at least the idea of God is the enemy to human flourishing. And all religions, all organized religions, including Christianity, they aren't just misguided and silly. They're evil, and they need to be opposed at all costs. So where does Dawkins come up with this laundry list? Well, he gets it. from from the Bible, in particularly the Old Testament. Um, I've been reading through a book by a scholar, a Christian scholar named Paul Copin. He wrote a book responding to Dawkins, and the title of the book is, Is God a Moral Monster? Is God a Moral Monster? And you see it's obviously responding to this caricature, this portrayal of God. And he to respond to this, he goes to the Bible itself, and he, he just goes through mainly the Old Testament. He starts at the, in Genesis, looks at God's command to Abraham to sacrifice his own son. Then he goes, works his way down through the plagues that he sends to Egypt, killing men, women, children, the command to kill the Canaanites when Israel was going to conquer the promised land. Um, There's a whole host of laws that either seem incredibly severe, for example, you know, children who talk back to their parents should be stoned to death, Um, or they seem really pedantic and backwards. Um... And so Copan, what he does is he examines all of these particularly difficult texts and says, okay, you have to understand them in the proper context. You have to understand them in the context of what he calls progressive revelation in that the, the law of Moses in the Old Testament was, it was instituted for a particular time and it was temporary and not ideal. God was working with the hardness of of the people's hearts. And he even alludes to, or Jesus alludes to that directly when he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, the reason that God allowed you to get divorced was because of the hardness of your hearts. And it's suggesting that some of the commands there in the Old Testament were put in place for a time, often dealing with people's hard, the hardness of their hearts and their sin. He, he talks, he looks at archaeology and says, well, actually, what we, what, what Dawkins and others say was genocide and ethnic cleansing. It actually wasn't that at all. It was just, you know, it was localized uh, skirmishes and battles. He looks at a, a whole host of things that, and says, you know, this is how you should read the Old Testament and, and, and showing that this is a caricature. But, but, you still, I still read through the Old Testament and we come away with a very strong sense that God does not like sin, that God does not like idolatry, that the punishment for sin and idolatry is death. And we see that again and again and again in the Old Testament. But that's not the full picture. So I said the new atheists like Dawkins are one school of thought. God is evil and in no, worthy, uh, in no way worthy of our faith, much less worship. Now the second school of thought that also I, f- I find is unhelpful is probably more appealing to many of us who are Christians in the church. And these are folks who look at the God in the Bible and say, yeah, I admit it, the God of the Old Testament seems like, you know, not always a a real great guy. He seems a little bit angry. But that's the Old Testament. Thankfully, we have the New Testament. We have Jesus, who sort of corrects all of the problems that we see in the Old Testament. I call this red-letter reductionism. If you have a, a printed copy of the Bible, and even in some of the online versions, you might notice that in many Bibles, the words of Jesus are printed in red. And what some people tend to do is they look at the words in red and think that those words are 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 more true, more significant, more helpful, more clear than the other words and so we can just read what's in red and kind of ignore everything else and there's a grain of truth in that you know Jesus said you want to see the father you look at me if you've seen me you've seen the father hebrews says that Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of, or the image of God who is invisible. Jesus makes the invisible God visible, and so there's truth in that. But it's not the full picture because the same God who, in, who spoke out the red letters also, through his Holy Spirit, inspired and spoke out all the other letters. And it doesn't make the picture of the Old Testament and some of the troubled texts, it doesn't make them go away. We can't put our fingers in our ears and say, Jesus, 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 and, and, and that doesn't solve the problem. We still have to wrestle with what is God like and why is he so angry in some of these texts. We can't just make God in our image. That doesn't solve the problem. So how should we understand those angry God sections in the Bible? And we're going to spend the rest of the message looking at that question. And to do that, we're going to look at one of the very last parables, stories that Jesus told before he died. And as we unpack it, I want you to see if you can trace the heart of God. What is it that provokes God to anger, and how does his anger actually play out in the real world? I'm going to read from Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. Mark 12, 1 to 12. These are the words of Jesus. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and traded him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him. "'killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. "'What then will the owner of the vineyard do? "'He will come and kill the farmers "'and give the vineyard to others. "'Haven't you read the scripture? "'The stone that the builders rejected "'has become the cornerstone. "'This came about from the Lord "'and is wonderful in our eyes. "'They were looking for a way to arrest Jesus, "'but feared the crowd because they knew "'he had spoken this parable against them.' So they left him and went away. This is a story. And so I want to ask you just a couple of questions about the story. What, what's your first... If you've never heard this story before, maybe you haven't, what's your first impression of the landlord in the story? How would you describe him? What about the tenant farmers? Who is angry in the story? Who gets killed justly? Who gets killed unjustly? Let's start with the context. Jesus, I said, told this parable less than one week before his own unjust execution. If you look back in the preceding chapter, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus is in the middle of teaching his disciples about his authority, about his authority, and then how he delegates that authority to his representatives on earth, the ones that will carry out his mission. And so they're walking along, Jesus is walking along with his disciples and they come past a tree, a fig tree. And there's, it's supposed, it's like uh, you know, harvest season. There should be ripe figs on the tree and there's nothing. There's no fruit on this tree and Jesus curses it. He just speaks to the tree says, may you never produce fruit again. And then they keep walking and the disciples think, that's weird, okay, Jesus, sure. And then there's an image, um, he goes into the temple. He goes into the temple, and there are people, there are all these tables and market stalls kind of set up, and they are uh, uh, basically cheating people. And if you've heard the story before, Jesus gets very angry, and he starts flipping over the tables and kicking these guys out, driving them out with whips. And, and again, people are looking around going, Jesus, what are you Doing and, and then, right after that, they go back in, to that same tree that they passed, like the, the day before, and the tree is completely dead and withered. And the disciples are like, man, what, 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 what did, why did you kill that tree? They're just kind of like, I don't get this at all. And so their confusion kind of parallels the response of the religious leaders who saw Jesus in the temple, and they come up to Jesus, and they go... By what authority? Who gave you the authority to do this, to come in and wreck the temple like that? Who died and made you king? See, that's what the question they're asking. They're questioning Jesus' authority. And Jesus does not answer their question directly. Instead, he tells them a story. The story we just read. A man planted a vineyard stop right there. If you were here back earlier in the year for our Isaiah series, you might remember that in Isaiah, there is, in chapter 5 and in chapter 27, there is a very similar story, recounted twice, about God planting a vineyard and tending for that vineyard and building a, a wall around it and a watchtower and a wine press. And unfortunately, though, Just like here in this story, the result of all of God's labor was absolutely nothing. The vineyard produces no usable fruit. And here, Jesus doesn't specify in the story whether the vineyard produced usable fruit or not, but we don't see any of it, do we? The landlord comes to collect the fruit. And they never, there's no detail, there's no indication that there's a bunch of fruit sitting over here and they just want to sit on it. No, there was no fruit to be seen. So it's a very similar story. But there's new characters that Jesus introduces onto the scene, and that is the tenant farmers. So you have the landlord, the one who has the authority, and now you have the tenant farmers, the ones that he has delegated his authority to. They were appointed by the landlord to be his representatives to tend the vines and water the vines so that they produce fruit. But again, there's no fruit. You see, and Jesus' point is, is these guys were doing their job. If they were doing what they were supposed to have done, there should have been plenty of fruit to share some of the produce with the landlord. But there's not. And so when his servants come calling to collect his share, what happens? What happens? I want you to imagine for a second, imagine this is your workplace, not a vineyard, but your workplace where you work, and the boss is, you know, in the process of conducting annual reviews on the employees. Maybe you have an HR department, and, uh, you know, the boss calls somebody in to HR to start looking at their performance, and instead of answering the questions... They put the interviewer in a headlock and just start pounding. Can you imagine that actually happening in the real world? Well, that's what's happening here. The farmers, they beat the first guy. Then they get a second chance, and they beat that guy. Then they kill the third guy. And this is, he sends many others. There's just this steady stream of these poor HR guys that come and get abused. You know, in the real world... Think about this, this happens one, you know, one time, one time, there's zero tolerance at, for workplace violence, right? For a good reason. Um, but this landlord seems pretty tolerant. He gives these blokes chance after chance after chance. He is almost frustratingly slow to get angry. And the landlord is the authority figure in the story. He owns the place. But you see, all the hard work that these farmers do every day in the hot sun, they are not the ones who get the glory for their work. Their names don't go on the wine label. They're not the ones that go and get the trophies at the wine show. No, they do all the work, but they don't get the glory. So, where's the landlord? I don't know. He's not there. He says he went away. Maybe he's off on a cruise, you know, sipping martinis. We don't really know. And then after he sends all these servants to collect and they refuse to pay up, he finally says, well, he sends his son. He says, well, maybe they'll respect him. They They see the son coming and they think, look at that guy. That guy has never done an honest day's work in his life. And he's, as soon as the guy, the old man kicks the bucket, he's going to inherit all of this. Let's kill him. That's their thinking. They assume that the patience, the slowness to anger is going to last forever. They assume that the landlord won't respond when they reject and abuse his son. They were wrong on both counts. The landlord has to respond. Why? Because these farmers, in killing the son, have declared mutiny on the authority of the landlord. Their violence, you see, was carried out on the son and on the servants, but it really was about smashing the authority of the landlord. That was their motive. And you see, this is a picture of what your sin and my sin looks like to God. God. A lot of us think that sin is something equivalent to, like, a cheat day on a diet. And Jesus corrects that assumption real quick. He says, no, this is what sin looks like. It looks like mutiny, treason, violence to God. And Mark brings this truth home in chapter 12, because remember, this is in the context of the religious leaders saying, who died and made you king, Jesus? Where does your authority come from? How can you tell us what to do? How can you act like this in our presence? We are the ones in charge, not you. And then Mark brings the the truth home in verse 12. It says, they, the religious leaders, the chief priests, and the elders— were looking for a way to arrest Jesus because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. They knew that they were the farmers in the story. They knew. You see, they weren't offended by the fact that the farmers in the story eventually got justice. Man, the justice, it was coming. They got what was coming to them. What they were offended by, why, as soon as Jesus you know, spoke this parable against him. They, they want to arrest him. Why? Because he is challenging their authority. He was exposing their unbelief, their rejection of his authority, which is why he quotes Psalm 118 in verse 10. Jesus is the son in the story. He's the stone, the promised Messiah, the one that God was going to send, just like the landlord sent the son. That the build, then the builders and the religious leaders reject that son. And so now their position, this is religious leaders, their position, their authority is now completely in question because it says that, you know, in the story, what does the landlord do? <clears throat> he kills them, takes away their authority, takes away their vocation, takes away their mission, and he gives it to someone else who will what? Bear fruit. You you understand why they're angry, because he's speaking prophetically against them. He's calling out their unbelief. He's calling out their sin. These are inept, wicked servants who violently rebel against their masters, and they're like that dead fig tree that's about to get chopped down. And see, the parable, if it was a prophecy, it couldn't have a more fitting ending, Just like the farmers in the story, as soon as Jesus turns his back, they start conspiring to kill him. So now, I want to go back and look at some of the objections that people raise to God's anger, and then, again, look at the parable to shed some light on those questions, because I want you to see that behind a lot of the objection that we have to God's anger is really a an objection to God's authority. That's that's the problem that we have. That's what we wrestle with in our heart, that God looks at you and me and says, you belong to me, you're not your own. That's what we as humans resist. We don't object to the fact that God is a just God who carries out justice on people who deserve it. We just don't tend to think that we deserve it. Now, here are four questions I think we should be asking when we encounter God's anger in the Bible. Question one. Why does God sometimes respond to human sin with violence, especially in the Old Testament? Now, as I mentioned before, the Old Testament stories have to be read in their context. Not all the violence that is carried out by humans, that is, God's judgment is God's ideal even in the way that judgment is carried out, is a, is a result of the fall, it's broken. You know, no human court, no human army can carry out justice perfectly. And so when you read the way in the Old Testament a story of this is the way it was, or this is the way it happened, doesn't mean that, that, that God is saying that's the way it should have been. It's just what happened. And so we have to read the Bible properly. However, we also recognize that God has to take sin seriously. Otherwise, he would not be just. He wouldn't be righteous. If there was no justice, no punishment for sin, all we would see in the world is just an explosion of unchecked, undeterred evil and wickedness. So it's not surprising that God punishes sin But just like in the story, the real surprise is how patient he is, how slow he is to anger. He is slow to anger. In in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, it's a beautiful refrain. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love to generations. But... He does not leave the guilty unpunished. That refrain is repeated almost verbatim, word for word, nine times in the Old Testament by six different authors written over a thousand years of history. It's something that God, in His Holy Spirit, when He's inspiring these books to be written, He says, I want you to know this about me. I am slow to anger, but I will not leave the guilty unpunished. I will not relent forever but I'm slow to anger, I'm gracious, I'm compassionate, I'm willing to forgive. Nine times in the Old Testament. See, the landlord in the story, he had every right after the first beating to throw these guys in prison, or at least to sack them. And yet, he gives them chance after chance after chance. He is patient, he's waiting for them to repent. He doesn't want anyone to perish, not then, not now, not ever. Eventually, he sends his son, and we all conspire to kill him. And it's at that point that he takes action. Eventually, justice will come. Otherwise, he would not, could not be just. Question number two. Why is death the punishment for sin? Why is death the punishment for sin? All sin, according to Scripture, is deserving of death. God is Infinitely holy, sin is infinitely evil, it's an affront to God's holiness, to his character. Evil must be punished. Think about it again, in story. Imagine if the landlord did not respond to the killing of his son, if he just allowed them to continue on in their mutiny, in their rebellion. The end result would be a little bit like every mob movie that's ever been made. You've got a bunch of gangsters, and they, what, they conspire to kill somebody or steal something, and they, they're successful in what they try to do, and they've got the, you know, the money that they were after, but what's the very next thing that happens after they get the money or they kill the guy? They start turning on each other. Because if, you know, if we are willing to kill for us, then I am willing to kill for me. That's the human condition. And so the landlord, justice, has to step in and stop the cancer from spreading. That's why the wages of sin is death. The only workable solution to sin is to kill it. And that even applies to our own, what we call, sanctification or becoming more like Jesus. And, and, you know, Paul talks about the, the lusts or the desires of your flesh that fight against What God wants for you, and what does He say to do? He says, put those desires to death, kill them. John Owen, Puritan writer about 400 years ago, he summarized it this way He said, You've got two choices as a Christian. You either kill your sin or it will kill you. Kill your sin or it will kill you. The wages of sin is death. Question number three What can satisfy the demands of God's anger? What can satisfy the demands of God's anger? God's anger, you see, is not cosmic venting. It's an act of war against injustice and against the poison of sin. That's why we don't talk about God's wrath as being appeased, as if God was some torturer that was holding us down, inflicting pain on us until we cry uncle, or until we say, or until he gets bored and then he stops. See, that's that's when we talk about appease. That's the picture. Now, we talk about God's wrath being satisfied. Every sin, every rebellion is directed at the heart of God. Even if it's against another person, it's directed at the heart of God. It's a rebellion against his authority, just like in the parable. Imagine for a minute, just in our human experience, that someone you know, someone you know, knew you well enough and was close enough to you that they were able to steal your personal, private information. And they took that information that they stole from you. Maybe it was a password. Maybe it was a a bank account number. And they used it to commit a crime. Let's say to commit fraud. And you know nothing about it until you get a phone call from the police or from your bank or just some random thing comes in, and you find out that someone you know has betrayed you, has violated your trust, you, if you're like most people, would be angry. Rightfully so. You would be experiencing wrath. And your wrath needs to be satisfied. What does it take for your wrath in that situation, wrath directed at this person who has violated you, What does it take for that to be satisfied? Typically, four things. Number one, you would need restitution. If someone has stolen money from you, something tangible, or maybe they've stolen your reputation or your credit score or something like that, you want it back. You need that thing that was taken from you to be restored. The second thing that you would need is justice, partly because sometimes restitution isn't possible but also because even if someone stole from you and handed it back, you would still have been violated. That person needs to receive justice so that they don't go out and do it again. You would want justice, punishment for the offense. But again, sometimes even that is not possible. And the third thing would be confession and genuine remorse. I don't know if you've ever seen on the news or been a part of this, you know, court hearings where they convict someone of a crime... And then that person will face the accuser, and uh, at the sentencing hearing, as the sentence is read out, and all, sometimes the person being sentenced will issue, will express remorse, will confess their crime. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they hold fast to their innocence, or they they say that yes, I did it, but I don't. I'm not sorry. And when that happens, we, if we are the victim, we feel victimized and violated all over again. We need confession and remorse to be able to move on, for our wrath to be satisfied. The fourth thing that we need is we need a healing of the memories. If you were, again, in the case of identity theft, you, if that happened to you, you will probably go for the rest of your life, or at least for a, a, a f- the foreseeable future, questioning your part, the part that you played, oh, I shouldn't have made my password so easy to guess. I shouldn't have left my phone. I shouldn't have trusted that person. And we can wrestle with those things, and when we need those memories to be healed for us to really be able to move on. Those are the things that we as humans need for our wrath to be satisfied when we've been sinned against. Now, again, I said all sin is a direct, directed at the heart of God. Imagine What does God need for his wrath to be satisfied? And are you or am I able to do it? Can you, can I satisfy God and his wrath? Can we give him justice? Can we do enough good to tip the scales of justice in our favor? Can we erase the memory of God? So that such that he, he doesn't see our sin. You see, we cannot do that. Only he can do that. Only he can satisfy his own anger and the justice it demands. And he does that not by sending an army, but a son. And that leads us to our final question. Why was the cross necessary? Why couldn't God just forgive us without the blood? Again, go back to the parable. You and I, we are the farmers in the story. And I've already asked, can you pay back the lives that you stole when you rejected his authority? Can you do enough good? Can you heal the pain in his heart? No, of course not. Only God can do those things. And he can do it by one of two ways. He can either give you and me perfect justice. He can destroy you. He can destroy me. Or he can absorb the wrath himself. We we do this as well. You know, I talked about before the four things that you need for your wrath to be satisfied. What What I didn't allude to or talk about is forgiveness. Well, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness, as at the very heart, it's a form of suffering. See, so when you forgive somebody, I was having a conversation just with someone the other day. You know, who was wrestling with whether it was, this is a a woman who had been betrayed in her marriage. And she said, I, I just can't make myself believe that he didn't mean it. I said, but that's, that's not forgiveness. You don't have to believe that he didn't mean it. Of course he meant it. To forgive is not to assume the other person didn't mean me any harm. To forgive is to know that he meant me harm and to let go of my right." To work out justice for myself, to let go of the right that I have sometime in the future to cash in and say, you know, you owe me because of what you did to me. It's to let go of that, and it's to absorb the cost of that in my own person. Forgiveness is suffering, and so the cross, you see, is just that same kind of suffering but on a cosmic scale, That's why the writer of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, in other words, without suffering, there is no forgiveness. Forgiveness cannot happen without suffering. God's wrath at sin, at our sin, is either satisfied by shedding your blood, by your suffering eternally, or by his own. When he suffered in your place, there's no other way for justice to be done. And see, the landlord sending his own son as his representative in the story is a massive clue to what the heart of God actually was on about. From the very beginning, it was his plan to send his son to absorb the consequences of our sin on the cross. It's exactly what did happen. It's exactly what had to happen to fulfill the demands of justice so that instead of you and me being crushed, He took that suffering on himself. And let me ask you, is that the calling card of a bully? Or of a lover who is so determined to save you in spite of yourself? Listen to Paul preach the gospel in Romans 3. He writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's my problem, that's your problem. We're the farmers, we have sinned. I've used my authority and my privilege to commit violence, and now God the landlord has to respond. Otherwise, he would be evil. He would be like an eyewitness that refuses to come forward or a judge that refuses to convict the guilty. In verse 24, and they, the guilty ones, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus. So rather than punish me immediately, he chose to forgive, to absorb the debt that my sin had racked up, verse 25, whom God, this Jesus, put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. That means uh, the one who would turn the wrath of, of God off of us and onto himself to be received by us by faith. Why? This was to show God's righteousness, both his love of God. Justice and mercy, because in his divine forbearance, which is his slowness to anger, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, so that every sin, every outrage is punished. He didn't just forget, he didn't just sweep it under the carpet, it was punished. So he was just and the justifier of the one, anyone who has faith in Jesus. So what about you? When you come across God's anger in certain passages of the Bible or his anger poured out on Jesus on the cross, do you see that and trust him as perfectly just? Do you trust that when his wrath is directed at the cancer of your sin, that it is actually an extension of his love for you? Some of us have surely been on the wrong side of selfish human anger and venting, maybe from a parent or a a friend or a sibling, and it especially hurts if that wrath comes from someone we know and if it's undeserved and abusive. And see, God sees that. He doesn't overlook that. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. He sees it. And he is righteously angry at the unrighteous anger that has been directed at you. The cross guarantees that. You can put your trust in him today, again or for the first time. And my prayer is that this is a God that you could not only believe in, but worship and treasure to seek after him with all of your heart. Because on the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath that you deserved to demonstrate his justice and mercy, his righteousness, that every wrong would be made right. Every victim gets justice. The very Jesus that you and I rejected has become the means of your peace with God, the payment for your forgiveness, the just and the justifier. And the end result is that if you believe, if you're a Christian, you are now perfectly justified and he is supremely glorified. Justice is and mercy. The cross alone accomplished both. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you don't just leave us in our sin. Thank you, Lord, that you made a way for every sin, every outrage, every injustice to be made right, without crushing us. Instead, you you crushed Jesus. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And it's by his wounds that we are healed. Lord, help us to believe that to the depths of our being. As we come tonight around the table where we remember your body, we remember your blood, we remember your death until the day you come again and we are with you face to face. Lord, Remind us of just what you did and how slow you are to anger and yet how just you are. Lord, may you move us again to worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.